Just a reminder, we've got a brand new podcast to listen to, a new 30-minute sermon every weekday. Please look up and subscribe to the Daily Sermon Podcast. Here's a short clip from Episode 1, which is titled, A New Start for a New Year. If God loves you and you have misplaced priorities, then don't be shocked if God sends someone to tell you that you need to do something different. Don't be shocked if you come across His Word and something convicts you. Don't be shocked if in your prayer life you understand that maybe God would have me do something differently than that which I am doing. If God loves you, He won't let you settle for some of the things you're settling for. Now, He probably will be very patient. In my own experience, that's been the case. Really patient God. But He will be consistent. He will ring your bell on stuff that you need to do differently. In those moments, don't clam up your ears, but respond. That's what the apostle meant in verse 13 when he said, I've reached forward to the things which are ahead. Notice he says, I don't have to guess what's ahead. The stuff God wants you to do, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out. You don't need 10 theology degrees to know you should spend more time in prayer and scripture and church, right? You don't need a bunch of degrees to know that. What you have to have is a will to do it. This podcast is available in video at fpcgulfport.org and fpcgulfport on YouTube. When the book of Ezekiel opened in chapter 1, it was a sad, depressing sight. Chapter 1 began with this depiction of a lonely Jewish priest who was celebrating his 30th birthday on the riverbanks in Babylon in a refugee camp. It was actually called Tel Aviv. Now, what was Ezekiel doing there? Why was he in Babylon? Well, again, as we talked about last week, the people of Judah had been naughty. Years earlier, the people in Israel, the northern kingdom, had been taken over by the Assyrians because God was judging them. God judged the ten tribes of Israel by sending the Assyrians to take them into exile. Now, you would have thought that the remaining two tribes, there's only two left, right? The remaining two tribes down in Judah, you would have thought that they would have said, hey, 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 what happened to them, we're not going to let happen to us. The errors, the sins, the bad choices they made, that's not going to be us. We're going to fly right and God will preserve us as we do. Well, what we see in Scripture is that they did last a little bit longer than the northern kingdom, but in due time, in due time, due to their sins and their apostasy, God judged His own remaining two tribes, even in the city of Jerusalem, even if it cost the destruction of the city and His own temple. That's how much God hates sin, that He would destroy His own temple. In fact, He's done it twice in history. You ever wonder if God will judge His own? You ever wonder if God really hates sin even when it is conducted among those who call themselves His children? Yes, He does. And He was willing to destroy His own temple multiple times to prove this point. With that said, southern kingdom of Judah did not learn the lessons of the northern kingdom. And so in time, God sent King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in. And the first thing they did was they took from Jerusalem the best and brightest. They didn't waste the city entirely at that point, and they didn't take everyone at that point. They went into the city, and they found the best and the brightest, and that's the ones they took in the first exile. So Ezekiel, this priest, was one of the first exiles that was taken out of Jerusalem, and he would never see it again, except in visions, which we'll talk about in the weeks to come. So with that said, that's the dynamic. That's the circumstance. He's sitting on a riverbank, a man who had been trained to be a priest, on the very day, the 30th birthday, that's when you began public ministry as a priest. He's not in the temple. He's not in Jerusalem. He's by the river. But then something happens. 
Specifically, he has a vision. The very first verse of Ezekiel 1, we read this. It came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, that I was among the captives by the river Chebar, and the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. Now, what kind of visions did we talk about last week? What did Ezekiel see? Well, among other things, he saw this fiery chariot. Remember, he saw the clouds like they were on fire. There was a whirlwind. There were clouds. Fire and lightning was in them. And within the clouds, there was a chariot. Beneath the platform, beneath the firmament, there were angels. They had four faces. They had four sides. They also had wheels that were turning and spinning, wheels that interlocked with one another so that the chariot could go in any number of different directions. Last week we talked about some of these figures and what they meant, what they represented and the like. Needless to say, for our purposes today, it was an impressive sight. Here was the throne of God, manifest in a way so striking, so powerful, depicting the omniscience, the omnipotence of God himself. Ezekiel sees this, and his reaction is, of course, to fall down. Now, back in the end of chapter 1, on top of the chariot, the chariot's really not the most impressive part. On top of the chariot, Ezekiel had seen a figure. On top of this chariot, which by itself we could spend weeks studying, on top of it was the most important part of it, and that was a figure. Last week we read this in verses 26 through 28 of chapter 1. Above the firmament, over the heads of the cherubim, was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like a sapphire stone. The likeness of the throne was the likeness of the appearance of a man who was high above it. And from the appearance of his waist and upward I saw were the color of amber, and the appearance of fire all around within it. And the appearance of his waist downward I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around, like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the brightness all around us. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Again, one minute, Ezekiel's sitting there by the riverbank, all alone, by himself, skipping rocks, wondering about his future. The next minute, his world is rocked because God shows up. God shows up, and he tells this young man, as we're going to see in a moment, he tells this young man that, yes, your priestly ministry, such as it is, it's over, or at the very least, it's not going to turn out the way you thought it would. However, however, your prophetic ministry, that's just beginning. All right, let's look at what God says to Ezekiel. Let's return to today's reading, beginning at chapter 2, verse 1. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet. Do you remember Ezekiel had fallen down at the very end of chapter 1? Stand on your feet, and I will speak to you. Then the Spirit entered me when he spoke to me. He set me on my feet, and I heard him who spoke to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I'm sending you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed me to this very day, for they are impudent. They are stubborn children. I'm sending you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus saith the Lord. Now as for them, whether they hear, whether they refuse, for they are a rebellious house, yet they will know this, that there has been a prophet in their midst. All right, the end of chapter 1. The young man knows Ezekiel had seen a vision of, of God himself, then he had fallen down, and here in the start of chapter 2, God lifts him up. God lifts Ezekiel up. He says, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak to you. Now, before we go any further, why does God call him Son of Man? I ask that question because God's going to call him a lot. Across the bulk of this book, we're going to hear God address, or have Ezekiel be addressed, as the Son of Man 90 different times throughout the book. Now, that's a good question, but it's even a better question when you remember 
that the only other person that's called Son of Man with that sort of recurrence is who? Jesus. You have Ezekiel called the Son of Man roughly 90 times. You have Jesus called the Son of Man roughly 90 times throughout the New Testament. Why is this? There's a lot of different theories as to what this might imply. One of them that I'm personally inclined towards is this. Ezekiel, much like Moses or much like David, Ezekiel was meant to be seen as a type of Christ. A type of foreshadowing and anticipation of the Messiah who would one day come. There was things about Ezekiel's ministry that were supposed to be understood as anticipating the Jesus who would come. And you see that in a lot of different regards. You know one of the main ways you see that? How old was Ezekiel when he started his ministry? 30. How old was Jesus when he started his ministry? 30. Both of their ministries, both the ministry of Ezekiel and the ministry of Jesus, ran predominantly from age 30 to 33. Now, Ezekiel lived longer than that, and there's a couple very small instances later in his life where there were certain prophecies and visions that were granted to him. But the bulk of Ezekiel's ministry was confined to this same window of 30 to 33. Now, beyond that, not everyone is both a prophet and a priest. Ezekiel was. Jesus, of course, is prophet, priest, and king. But for Ezekiel to hold this dual office is somewhat suggestive of the Christ who would come. Furthermore, both of these guys, Ezekiel and Christ, were sent to God's people. They were not necessarily sent to Nineveh or to foreign or pagan nations, but they were sent to God's people, and both of them would be rejected, rejected by God's people. There's a lot of ways, a lot of parallels we can see, and we'll build on them in the weeks to come. But there's parallels by which we can see Ezekiel, this prophet, as a type or anticipation of the Christ who would come. That may be one of the reasons he's referred to as the Son of Man. So verses 1 through 5. God says, all right, son of man, stand up. I'm going to send you to rebellious people. They're not going to listen to you, but they'll know this. When you're done speaking, they'll know there had been a prophet among them. There had been a prophet in their midst. Now, we call this a commission. We call this a commissioning. This is what had occurred here. Verses 3 and 4, God says, I'm sending you. This is a charter, a mandate that comes from on high. God looked at all the people, all the options, and of his own sovereign volition, he says, that guy, that's the guy I'm sending. So he says, son of man, I'm sending you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that's rebelled against me. Their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. So this wasn't God just acting on a whim. This isn't God just getting bent out of shape in a moment, but he had been patient for a long time. He says, their fathers did this, their fathers did this, and they continue to do it to this day. And I'm sending you, Ezekiel, to them to explain what's gone on, to explain why they're in Babylon. You're going to be one of the guys to do that. Other men like Jeremiah would do the same thing, but you're going to be one of the men to explain why, why this has befallen. You're also going to tell them what the future holds, and it holds both good news and bad. On the one hand, everyone thinks that they're going to get home, like in a six months from now or a year, not going to happen. They're going to be in Babylon how long? 70 years. Tell them to get comfortable because they're going to be there for a while. So on the one hand, that's bad news, right? They're going to be there for a while. And Ezekiel, you need to be one of the guys that's going to tell them this sort of bad news. But there's also good news that at the end of 70 years, they're going to come back. That I'm not done with these children no matter how rebellious they've been. Ezekiel, I'm sending you with this message. Now with that said verses 3 and 4, embedded in God's words to Ezekiel, is this concept. He says to Ezekiel, I'm sending you to people who clearly don't like me. They don't like my law. They don't want to do what I've said. They don't like me. So guess what, Ezekiel? They're not going to like you. 
he lowers the bar of expectation here significantly for Ezekiel and says, they don't like me and they're not going to like you. You know, one of the hardest parts of ministry is trying to help people who don't want to be helped. One of the hardest parts of evangelism is what? Trying to save people who don't want to be saved. Or at the very least, who don't acknowledge anything that they need to be saved from. This is one of the hardest parts of ministry. Trying to do what God has called you to do, go to those people that God has sent you to, only to find that they're resistant. Or worse yet, rebellious, as was the case here. Now, not every job, you know, not every job works that way. If you and I were to dismiss, and let's say we went down to Gulfport, right? We went down towards the beach, and we were to hand out dollar bills. Just stand there, just handing out dollar bills. Everyone comes up, they get a dollar bill. Guess what? You'd be the most popular man or woman in Gulfport, right? You'd have people coming from all over. There'd be posts on social media. Come see this guy's giving away free money down by the beach. You'd be the most popular person. Everyone would come to you. Now, what would happen if you went to that same corner, same time of day, with a sandwich board or something that says, Jesus loves you. What's going to happen? People will see that, and they'll cross the street. They'll go the other way to avoid an encounter with you, to avoid some sort of interaction. When you're offering the gospel, you have what people desperately need, but it's not something that they want. Well, this is true of those that Ezekiel was sent to as well. They didn't want what he was going to offer. They hadn't wanted God's word through all the mediums that he had provided it. Remember when Moses, Moses had done all these amazing, fascinating things through the power of God. The minute he goes up, 40 days, he goes up to Mount Sinai. He's gone a little too long. Their tummies start to rumble with rage. They get angry and they say, well, what to do now? Gold calf. The people, whether it was in Moses' time, Isaiah's time, Ezekiel's time, Jeremiah's time, their tendency was to reject God, his mandate, his word, his laws, his decrees, his prophets. In fact, they usually killed the prophets. So God says, Ezekiel, this is what your future holds. All right, let's see what God has to say next about the nature of opposition that Ezekiel would encounter. Let's look at verses 6 through 8. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them. Do not be afraid of them or afraid of their words, although briars and thorns are with you, although you dwell among scorpions. Do not be afraid of their words. Do not be dismayed by their looks, although they are a rebellious house. You shall speak my words to them, and whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are a rebellious house, you, O son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like them. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I will give you. You know, there was a point in Christ's ministry, there was a point when he gathered his disciples close, because he knew what he was sending them in to do. The disciples were given a commission, right? Jesus gave them a commission. He made them his disciples. He called them to himself, and then he ultimately sends them out. But Jesus knew the sort of opposition that they would face. He knew the sort of danger that they would face, and so he tells them, he gathers his men, and he says, hey, guys, guys. I'm sending you out like sheep among the wolves. I'm sending you out like sheep among the wolves. In verse 6 of today's reading, God's saying the same to Ezekiel, the same message, same thing. He says, Ezekiel, you are being sent into a spiritual environment that's going to include briars, thorns, scorpions. You know, I, used to, I used to think that ministry could only be effectively accomplished that my job can only be effectively done once all the obstacles or difficulties or briars or thorns had been 
have been removed or somewhat minimized. In other words, I thought this. I thought you have to have the optimal environment. You come into a setting, and I was in a church plant initially, so that made it easier. But you come into a setting, come into an environment, and you create the most optimal environment you can in ministry. You minimize all the thorns and briars and difficulties and hardships and the like. And then, once your scenario is finally optimal, once things are the way you really want it to be, then you can get down to ministry. Then you roll up your sleeves and say, all right, I've got the optimal situation. Everything is the way that it should be. And now the things are the way it should be. Now I can really get ministering. But then I read Paul. And I read about Paul being beaten. And I read about Paul being shipwrecked. And I read about Paul being in jail. And I looked at Paul's ministry, and I couldn't find a scant minute where everything was going fine for Paul, where everything about his circumstance was lined up the exact way that Paul might have wanted it to be. It just doesn't happen. Ministry is wonderful, but I tell you, it is difficult. There are briars, there are challenges, there are difficulties. And if anyone goes into ministry thinking we can eradicate those things and then get started, no. They will be with you every step of the way. That's just the norm in Scripture. It's the biblical model. The Bible doesn't predicate effective ministry on idealized situations. Now the prophets, like the Apostle Paul, were case in point to this. The prophets, it was always terrible circumstances for them. There was always thorns. There was always briars. There was always wolves. There was always scorpions in their path. And rather than try to clear-cut those out of the way, thinking that you could finally get an idealized spiritual garden to operate within, they just had to deal with it. They just had to cope. God doesn't say, I'm going to remove all these things, and then you'll get started. He says, no, this is going to be what you'll face throughout your ministry. Difficulties. Hardships. People who don't necessarily like you. It'll be a briar patch you will never escape. And furthermore, furthermore, in Ezekiel's case, God made him no promises how it would turn out. No promises. He says, whether they listen to you or whether they don't, they'll know this much, that a prophet had been in their midst. And so in effect, what God does is he says, Ezekiel, you be in charge of Ezekiel. Be the holy, righteous, devout man I've called you to be. Preach my word and trust I will do my good pleasure with it. The moment of Ezekiel's commissioning, it wasn't the people's obedience that was being tested. It was the prophet's. All right, let's see. In verse 8, God says, Son of man, hear what I say. Don't be rebellious like that rebellious house, but open your mouth and eat what I give to you. Let's see in our next set of verses what it was that God gave to Ezekiel to eat. Let's look in verse 9 through the first part of verse, chapter 3. Verse 9, Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, the scroll of a book was in it. Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside, and it was writing on the outside. This means it was comprehensive of all that God had intended him to read or to hear or to ingest in this case. It's comprehensive. There's writing on the inside and the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll, and then go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat the scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly, fill your stomach with the scroll that I give you. And so I ate, and it was in my mouth like honey. Honey and sweetness. You know, I have a lot of experience eating things. <laughs> and over the years, I've learned, I've learned a few things about food. Now, among the things I've learned is that when you eat or ingest something, whatever that something might be, what you've consumed at that point becomes 
a part of you, whether you like it or not. If you eat something, what you eat is broken down, and then it's broken down in ways that theoretically will contribute to your overall body or health. Of course, you could eat something that's poisonous, which does the exact opposite. But with that said, what you eat has an effect on you. Well, here in these verses about this scroll, there's a lesson here with regards to what Ezekiel was asked to eat. Specifically, he's asked to eat a scroll and then to speak to the house of Israel. Now, why a scroll? You don't find that on most menus. Why a scroll? Well, in this case, it's because of what the scroll represents. The scroll represents something beyond just itself. It represents the words of God, the laws of God, the precepts of God, and the consequences Remember the lamentation of mourning and woe? The consequences of not obeying the laws of God. And he says to Ezekiel, I want you to eat this. I want this to be part of you. I want you to ingest this. And it's only then, after you've ingested something that typifies the word of God, that you'll be equipped to go and speak to the people of God. Let's look at what he took to the people in verses 4 through 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language, but to the house of Israel. Let me stop there for a minute. Sometimes we send missionaries, right? We commission missionaries and we send them out in the four nations. Well, God says the biggest mission field around is in the house of my people. The biggest mission field in Ezekiel's day was not necessarily the people outside the doors of Israel, but rather it was within the body, within the visible nation. It's probably not that dissimilar in our own day and age. One of the greatest mission fields for the church, it's probably already within the church. Probably already people sitting in pews, not unlike ours, across this country, across this world. In this case, he says, son of man, go to them. Go to Israel. Go to my people. Go to my nation. People that aren't unfamiliar language, they're not outside your doors, but to the house of Israel. Not to many people of unfamiliar speech with words you cannot understand. Surely, had I sent you to them, they would have listened. Oh, what irony there. If I was to send you to the people in pagan nations, they would have listened more so than my rebellious children. You start to see why God's so irritated at this time. He says, if I had sent you to them, verse 6, they would have listened. But the house of Israel will not listen because they will not listen to me. For all the house of Israel, they're impudent. They're hard-hearted. Behold, I've made your face strong among their faces, and your forehead strong against their foreheads. Like Adam and stone, harder than flint, I've made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them. Do not be dismayed at their looks, though they're a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, receive into your heart all my words that I speak to you. This is like eating the scroll. Receive into your heart the words that I'm speaking to you. Hear them with your ears, and then go, verse 11, go, get to the captives, to the children of the people, and speak to them. And tell them, thus saith the Lord, whether they hear you or whether they refuse. You know, off to the side of my yard, we have what looks like a grassy area. But if you actually look closer, you'll find that there's a big slab, a huge slab of sandstone of some kind. It's just impervious. You can't dig around. You can't really do anything. You can't plant grass on it. It won't grow because it can't get rooted at all. Now, as I've looked at this part of the side yard, there's a lot of things in the back of my mind I think I can accomplish. I think I'm far handier than I really am. So I, I look at this and I think, I could do that. In-ground pool, no problem. Or I could accomplish certain wonderful you know, garden or something. The reality is I probably can't do any of it either way, but I certainly can't do it as long as that rock is there. I don't have a chance of doing anything. I can't even lay sod down as long as this rock is here. I'd have to first hammer or chisel or dynamite or what have you, this thing out of the yard. 
But that said, in verses 4 through 11, God tells Ezekiel that he's going to have a tough ministry because the people, if they didn't listen to God, they're not going to listen to him. That's the bad news. But in verse 8, he says something encouraging. He says, Ezekiel, I'm going to make you like a rock. You know the people I'm sending you to? They're hard-headed. Hard-headed and hard-hearted. But you know what I'm going to do with you? I'm going to make your head harder. Like adamant stone, harder than flint, I will make your forehead. Do not be afraid of them. Do not be dismayed at their looks, although they are a rebellious house. God looks at Ezekiel and he says, yeah, you're going to some of the hard-headed, hard-hearted, most stubborn, most impudent people on the face of this planet. But in order for you to effectively minister to people that are that hard to deal with, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to make your head harder still. You're being hard-headed in our culture, we consider that a bad thing, right? If you say, so-and-so, boy, he's a hard-headed guy, right? That's not something you want to hear because it implies to us arrogance. It implies to us someone's just committed to doing something, whether it's right, wrong, smart, dumb, or what have you. Being hard-headed is not necessarily good. In the biblical context, especially here in Ezekiel chapter 3, it is a very good thing. I assure you, we need more hard-headed men in our own day and age. You know, not long ago I was reading Jeremiah, and, and God says almost the same thing to one of Ezekiel's contemporaries, to Jeremiah. He said this in Jeremiah 15. He says, Jeremiah, you shall stand before me, right? If you take the precious out from the vial, you will be as my mouth. Let them, let the people return to you, but you must not return to them. And I will make you to this people a fortified bronze wall, and they will fight against you, but they will not prevail against you because I'm with you to save you and deliver you. Being a prophet was a hard job because you were sent to people that were bound and determined to reject what you said and to desire to kill you. But God tells Jeremiah, God tells Ezekiel, he says, worry not, I got this. I got this. Don't you be worried. You see their dirty looks, their angry looks. You see all this stuff. Don't you shrivel back. You keep doing what I sent you to do. You preach the word. You tell them what they need to hear, and I will make you like a bronze wall before them. They'll throw themselves at you. They will absolutely do everything they can to knock you off of your ministry or to just knock you off, period. I won't let them. Stay strong. Preach what I've told you to preach. You know, being a pastor or a priest or a prophet, you don't have to be the strongest person in the world in of yourself. And you don't need your circumstances to be ideal. We've already covered that. But you certainly don't have to be stronger than your adversaries. That's not the way it's ever worked. Was Moses, the guy who could barely speak, was he stronger than Pharaoh? No. Even Moses acknowledged that. That in of himself, he can contend against Pharaoh. Was David stronger than Goliath? Not by a country mile. In fact, he was the run of the litter. He was the last guy when they were picking out kings. He was the last of all the children they went to. God loves to take that which is weak and infuse within them a strength to accomplish that which they could otherwise not do by themselves. What made weak individuals strong? God. God can do anything he so desires. He can take that which is weak and silly and stupid at times and strengthen it and use it in ways that no one could see coming. And that's what he says I'm going to do with you, Ezekiel. All right, let's look at our final verses here. Point being that God is with his people and he would be with Ezekiel. Let's look at verses 12 through 15. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me a great thunderous voice. Blessed is the glory of the Lord from his place. I also heard the noise of the wings of the living creatures that touched one another, and the noise of the wheels beside them, and a great thunderous 
noise. And so the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness and the heat of my spirit. But the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. Then I came to the captives at Tel Aviv, who dwelled by the river Chebar, and I sat where they sat, and I remained there astonished among them for seven days. So God gives them the commission. He tells them what to expect. He tells them what he's called to do. And he says, I'll be with you as you do it. And then to prove the point, he picks up Ezekiel. He could have said, all right, now go your way. It's a mile down the road. Turn left and you'll be there. He doesn't do that. He picks him up. And there Ezekiel is in the air with the sound of the angel's wings beating. They call it like thunderings. The wheels are turning. The wings are beating. The fire is still fiery. God takes him in that power, in that authority. Even though Ezekiel says, I went in the bitterness of my spirit, in the heat of my spirit, but the hand of the Lord is strong with him. And God does something with Ezekiel, the way he lifts him up before he deposits him where he needs to be to show him, I'll be with you. If I was with you in air, with the strength and the wheels, and the angels and the cherubim and the fire, then I'm going to be with you when you open your mouth to the people. All right. So these were verses 12 through 15. He is now sitting by the river Chebar, having had this experience. You know, there's only one other guy that comes to mind who was taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot. Only one other guy who was taken up in the clouds in a, in a fiery chariot. Do you know who I'm talking about? Elijah. Elijah was taken up into heaven in a fiery chariot. Did Elijah come back? No. I mean, not you know, the transfiguration, but no. Elijah was one and done. The chariot is sent. This divine chariot comes down, scoops up Elijah, and is taken up to heaven. The difference with Ezekiel is that Ezekiel got a ride in the chariot, but Ezekiel was taken back. Why? Because his ministry wasn't done. In fact, it was just getting started. Instead of going up to heaven, God drops Ezekiel back on the earth in the very refugee camp in which he lived in an area called Tel Aviv. And for seven days thereafter, Ezekiel didn't say anything. He just sat there astonished. He sat there and he considered what had just happened. And at some point, his mind probably drifted to, now what am I going to do next? What do I do next? Well, I hate to end on a cliffhanger, but I'm going to end on a cliffhanger. Next week, we're going to see what happens next. Ezekiel now has his commission. He's now back with his people. And in the second half of chapter 3, we're going to see that a special title is going to be given to Ezekiel. He's going to be called the Watchman. We'll talk about the Watchman next time. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 10 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.